Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So it's now late April 2023, and that noise, roaring and rushing, is the sound of the river ooze. For clarity, it's spelt O-U-S-E rather than the other less romantic way. It's an ancient pre-Celtic word meaning simply water or river, meaning my local river is the river river. Now, we all know that villages, towns and cities thrive when they're next to bodies of water, and our village is no different. Shipping, trading, fishing and milling are all pillars on which human beings have built places where they can prosper. But today's story is set in a place where the coast has moved. It's now an inland village while it used to be coastal. And all over England there are places like that. And also places where the opposite has happened. Places where the sea has moved in and hungrily gobbled towns whole, like Dunwich in Suffolk, which famously disappeared beneath the waves in the 13th century. Amazingly, over 300 medieval towns have met the same fate as Dunwich over the years, washed away and drowned. And looking at just the River Ouse, which is a small river, I mean, you can hear the power of it. Yet, for what water takes, we should never lose sight of what it gives us. It's magic stuff, and perhaps even the stuff of magic. With this thought in mind, gather close around the Three Ravens campfire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens podcast. There were three ravens sat on a tree. Down a down, hey down a down. They were as black as they might be with a down. One of them said to his mate, Where shall we our breakfast take? With a down, dairy, 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 down, down. 
Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Three Ravens podcast. My name's Martin Vaux. I'm a storyteller, writer and English romanticism obsessive. And I'm joined as ever by my partner in crime and all dark arts, award-winning poet, playwright, Shakespeare scholar and witch... Eleanor Conlon. How's things, Eleanor? You seem to be wearing a bigger smile than normal. Yes, I'm extremely happy this week for two reasons. Oh, go on. First, we've now had over 1,200 downloads yes, of the podcast. we have, which is crazy. It means we might actually meet our goal of achieving 2,000 downloads in two months, which will get us on to the Apple Podcasts new and noteworthy list. So thank you to everyone who's sharing the podcast, downloading it, listening, reviewing. It's making a massive difference. Yes, and I'm also celebrating because, well, remember back in episode four when you told us about the Sockburn Worm? I do very well. Sir John Conyers and his gold bright falchion. Well, at the end of the episode, we were talking about different types of dragon. Yeah. And do you remember we talked about knuckers, those water dragons? We did, we holes. did. I think I know what this is and it is exciting news yes it is because very happily rust and stardust has secured funding to create a new education show in orford and suffolk featuring one of those knuckers and likely martin in pluderhose Ooh, lucky me and everyone i guess <laughs> absolutely <laughs> well we have started work on that project but dear listener if you can get along to suffolk in june then please come along and see us in the Nucker of Nodzel. I can promise sword fights, pie fights, original songs, and a very pretty dragon puppet. A very pretty dragon puppet. It should be great. And do remember to follow Rust and Stardust on social media for further communications on that topic. As for other communications, thank you to everyone who has entered the Three Ravens card design contest so far. Just five weeks to go. Yes, please. If you're an artist of any skill level, We've actually had a lack of entries from younger people, yeah. so I would encourage younger artists to send us pictures that would look nice on the front of greetings cards. The only criteria is that the design should be inspired by nature and the folk tradition. So dragons, monsters, heroes, princesses, witches, fairies, uh, magic trees? Magic anything. Yes, uh, magic anything. Draw it and email it to us as a JPEG to threeravenspodcast at gmail.com and we'll pick our three favourites to turn into greeting cards and sell for a 50-50 profit share with the winners through our online shop at threeravenspodcast.com. Also, thank you so much to everyone who's joining us on social media, including on facebook.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast, Instagram at Three Ravens Podcast, and on Twitter via at Three Ravens Pod. Oh, yes. Particular thank yous go to Danny Robbins from the sensationally good Uncanny Podcast, as well as the Battersea Poltergeist and the Witch Farm. The new series of Uncanny is so scary. <laughs> I am struggling to go downstairs after dark having listened to it. <laughs> thank you all. Also to Denise, Ian, C.W. Reeve, Noodle Dragon, The Goddessy Podcast and Craig. It means a huge amount when people share our stories. It really does. So please keep telling your friends and passing things on. But last week, one of my tweets was seen by over 10,000 people, which was insane. <laughs> Thank you so much, Three Ravens community. Keep gronking from the rooftops. So... We're releasing this episode on Monday the 24th of April, which is St. Mark's Eve. It's an important day all over the country because it's all about 
divination. For those less in the know, divination is about telling the future. And just before people get all high and mighty, Jesus' disciples famously used cleromancy, the casting of lots to decide who should replace Judas Iscariot in Acts 1, 23-26. So divination is totally cool with the church. Who did replace Judas Iscariot? I'm not 100% sure. I think it was Matthias. Well, whoever it was, that's going to be a really awkward onboarding process, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, quite a difficult job interview. So before you, we had this guy. Judas. And, uh, yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's St Mark's Day. He knows what he's about. Yes, evangelist Mark, writer of Gospels. And in terms of what we mean by divination, um, you've obviously got cleromancy, which I just mentioned. You've got geomancy, which is about using sand. Ooh, that sounds quite difficult. It does, doesn't it? It's popular in Middle Eastern traditions. You've got astronomy and astrology. You've got bibliomancy, so that's using a book like you were describing in episode two when you were talking about people opening the works of Shakespeare to try and tell their fortune. I think we should try that. Yeah. What fortune do you think you'd get from well, the works of Shakespeare? I don't know. I'd be slightly worried that I'd open it up and it, you know, I'd be having a Titus Andronicus kind of thing. Oh, no one wants that. <laughs> you've also got the study of dreams, which is called aneromancy. And you've got scrying, which involves looking into crystal balls and mirrors and so on. Dowsing, using pendulums and probably loads of others too. Tell us your favourites on uh, Twitter, if you're on Twitter. Please, We'd love to know your favourite method of divination. Now... In English folklore, traditions vary, but in Lincolnshire, the devil is supposed to be abroad on St Mark's Eve. Abroad as in enjoying a holiday in the Bahamas and wearing uh, swimming trunks, or just out and about? No, just wandering through the landscape, which is appropriate for my story today, actually. Anyway, he's meant to be able to make animals talk on St Mark's Eve, so do try having a chat with any animals in your life this evening. And they'll probably just say, did you see the devil? He's just gone past. <laughs> also, he's wearing really snazzy trousers. Um, <laughs> And also, fern seeds are meant to ripen as he passes in what's known as the devil's harvest. Yeah, the devil, surprising friend to ferns. Quite right. Uh, in Yorkshire, the tradition goes that if you sit on the porch of your local church between 11pm and 1am on St Mark's Eve for three years running, so, you know, quite the commitment there, then from the third year on, you'll be able to see the ghosts of living people coming into the churchyard. Now, I recall something, I think, in one of Thomas Hardy's short stories okay. about this very tradition. So, I don't know if Hardy included this, but the idea is that the apparitions are said to belong to all the people who are set to die in the village or the parish in the next three years. The only downside is if you fall asleep while waiting to see these spirits, then their fate will be yours and you'll die instead. <laughs> I think if you don't mind, we will give it a miss because <laughs> I don't like my chances of staying awake. No, normally you're quite sleepy by about half nine. <laughs> so anyone born on St Mark's Eve is also meant to have the gift of second sight and be able to see ghosts as a matter of course. So if it's your birthday today, happy birthday and... Uh, well, I hope the spooks and spectres have all chipped in to get you something nice. Ghostly chocolate, perhaps. Hmm. I wonder if ghostly chocolate would be substantial chocolate. Like, could living creatures actually eat ghost chocolate? Well, I'm sure it's got a negative calorie count, so Ooh. it might really catch on. 
dead calories. <laughs> as, as for the rest of us, today is a good day for any sort of divination. In our house, while we do cast runes from time to time, we're mostly tarot users, aren't we? Yes, we are. And there is a lovely tarot spread in the Three Ravens newsletter for our subscribers on Patreon. Do consider signing up at patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens podcast to learn more. And we'll be posting our own tarot spreads on social media today. So do pop by and take a look. Oh, look. What's that coming through the veil? What is it? What can you see? Oh, my goodness. It's... It's... What? The County Criers! Okay then, Eleanor, when you think about Lancashire, what are the things that immediately pop into your mind? Well, the Wars of the Roses, uh-huh. uh, the Red Roses of the Lancastrians. Yep. But I did also do some homework before this week's episode. <laughs> you're, so good. you're always doing your homework. <laughs> and I looked up a medicinal cure. Okay, go on, tell me. In Lancashire, they have whooping cough completely sorted. Oh, do they? Yes. If your child develops whooping cough, all you need to do is pass it nine times around the neck of a female donkey. <laughs> what? Pass what around the neck of a donkey? Your child. <laughs> I mean... <sighs> Do we do we have any donkeys anywhere near us? Do you know anyone with whooping cough? No, not any children. Then we can't test it. What a shame. <laughs> okay, well, yes to all that, I suppose. Um, for those less familiar, Lancashire is in the northwest of England with its west coast facing Ireland and bordering the Irish Sea. Historically, it was bordered by Cumberland, Westmoreland, Yorkshire and Cheshire. As always, there's a map showing its location in England on threeravenspodcast.com, though it's fair to say that its borders have changed quite a bit over the years. Why is that? It's mostly because in the 1970s, Manchester and Liverpool split off into their own regions and some of the county was also gobbled up by Yorkshire, those cheeky pudding masters. (laughs) It's a great Twitter handle. At Cheeky Pudding Masters. Yeah, true enough. I wonder if it's taken. <laughs> you can have that one for free. <laughs> now, the historic county town of Lancashire is Lancaster, and its county motto is Latin, in concilio concilium, meaning in council is wisdom. Mm, with the local elections coming up, we'll see if that's true. <laughs> yeah, true enough. <laughs> now, one of the many cool things about Lancashire is that Dunsop Bridge in the Ribble Valley marks the geographical centre point in the whole of the British Isles. So you can stand on Dunsop Bridge and be smack bang in the middle of the UK. Wow. Do they have a sign? I don't know if they have a sign. Well, I hope they have a sign. They ought to have a sign. Smack bang in the middle of the UK. <laughs> yeah, quite. That's what it should say. <laughs> Smack bang in the middle of the UK. We should design it for them. <laughs> also, another cool bit of trivia. Lancashire is home to both the biggest and smallest towns in the UK. Bolton is the biggest, with a population of over a quarter of a million people, while Town, also known as Bajal Eaves, is a town with a population of 200. <laughs> now, as a whole, the county is full of incredibly beautiful natural sites and regions, including 30 different protected areas, maybe the most famous of which is the forest of Boland. It's massive, over 800 square kilometres. That's almost half a million square miles in old money, which, as a frame of reference, means it's bigger than New York. 
Really? Yep. Wow. I know. That's an incredible amount of forest. It is a lot. And think of all the beasties that might live inside it. Oh, yes. Yeah. I'd like to know about the, the well, bestiary of Boland. Yeah, lots and lots of folktales crawling and squawking and clambering out of that forest. Now, the county is maybe most famous these days for being the epicentre of the Industrial Revolution. It was famed for its coal field, its mill towns and the boat building and cotton trades. Check this out. By 1830, Lancashire was where 85% of all the cotton in the world was manufactured. Really? I never would have guessed that. I think, I guess I would have assumed that more was manufactured in the United States. Well, that's where the cotton came from, which mm. is a, a kind of pretty uncomfortable topic. But irrespective, the influx of wealth gave birth to amenities like amazing canals, the Blackpool Tower, the first motorway was built in Lancashire. It also saw the creation of local delicacy, the Lancashire hot pot. Oh, that sounds tasty. Well, Lancashire actually has quite a legacy in food. The sweet, the jelly baby, was invented there. Really? Yeah, originally they were called unclaimed babies. Why? <laughs> well, they were named after the babies historically left on church steps. Wow, that's a way darker origin story for jelly babies than I ever could have anticipated. I know, right? So there was this German emigrate called Steinbeck, and he was trying to make a new type of jelly bean. Uh, he saw that they went wrong, and they ended up looking a bit like babies so they were sold to raise money for orphans huh. after yeah. after plumbing the dark depths that had a surprisingly heartwarming <laughs> twist at the end yeah quite right likewise the first fish and chip shop was founded in lancashire and you've also got the eccles cake from perhaps unsurprisingly Eccles. Now, Eccles cakes are one of those things I've heard of, but I'm a bit unclear on what they actually are. Well, they're also a kind of cake that maybe isn't actually a cake. We have a lot of those in England. We do. So it's, it's this kind of current-filled pastry turnover, I guess is the best way of describing mm, it. Sounds intriguing. Can yeah. we get hold of some? We can. They sell them in the shops. Fantastic. Let's taste test some as soon as we can. <laughs> now, as for the Lancashire hot pot, basically, strictly regulated work hours in factories saw working women taking a pudding or stew to the local baker's oven and leaving it there to cook all day. Few families had ovens themselves, so it needed to be something that would tenderise and be fine to cook for hours and hours and hours. The Lancashire hot pot specifically is a stew normally of mutton although it tends to be made of lamb now with sliced onions carrots turnips and leeks covered with a layer of sliced potatoes Ooh, sounds lovely um, early recipes uh, tended to also add lamb kidneys. Would you like some lamb kidneys in your hot pot? Uh, you can hold the lamb kidneys from mine thank you. <laughs> okay well they also used to interestingly include Oysters, although increasing cost has eliminated the oysters over the years. I'll take the oysters. Yeah, but, but not the lamb's kidneys. No, thank you. You surprise me. <laughs> now, all of that stuff is pretty modern by the Three Ravens measuring stick. Looking back a bit further, like much of the north of England, the county was part of the ancient kingdom of Brigantium, which we know about because of the Romans. It was then made part of the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Northumbria, with the county of Lancashire technically first established in the 12th century. There's amazing ruined abbeys from this time all across Lancashire, including Cockerstone Abbey, Sawley Abbey and Worley Abbey. Have you heard of any of those? I haven't. No, well, they are very, very pretty. If you look them up, they are wonderful places to visit. 
The county symbol, though, the red rose of Lancaster, was adopted in opposition to the white rose of York. You kind of mentioned this and alluded to it earlier. The War of the Roses, kind of fundamental history for most English people, but it resulted in a pretty problematic marriage between the Lancastrian Henry VII, who married Elizabeth of York in 1486, which united the two houses and founded the Tudor dynasty. My entire knowledge of that episode in history comes from Shakespeare's Richard III, so don't <laughs> quote me on that. Well, he doesn't present it as unproblematic. But... <laughs> <laughs> no. Now, in 1612, Lancashire was also the site of the Pendle Witch Trials, where oh, yes. 12 women from Pendle Hill were charged with 10 murders by witchcraft and tried at Lancaster Castle. The women were all found guilty and hanged, and in 1998, so really quite recently, a petition was made to the British government to pardon the witches, but the government reviewed the case, looked at all the evidence, and said that the convictions for witchcraft should stand. So, hold on. Yeah. The Tony Blair new Labour government yes. decided that those were completely valid yeah. convictions for witchcraft. Yeah, but I, I mean, you know better than I, but as far as I'm concerned, like witchcraft continued to be a legal offence like into the 20th century. Yes, the last person convicted for witchcraft in England was in 1944. 1944? <laughs> yes. <laughs> she, well, um, to clarify, she was a medium who was charged with fraudulent oh. presenting herself as having psychic powers and using false ectoplasm. But, the but idea... she was still charged under the Witchcraft Act. The idea, though, that witchcraft was still a legal offence, you know, around the time of World War Two, <laughs> yeah. kind of blows the mind. And beyond. I, I don't think um, the Act for Witchcraft um, was officially ended until the 50s. Oh, my goodness me. So in my research, I was so inspired by all this that I've written a bonus episode about the Pendle Witch Trial specifically, which I'll be making available exclusively on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast. And boy, I could talk Lancashire folklore all day. Where do you want to begin? Well, at the beginning. Okay. Uh, well, how about the Winwick pig? Ah, a friend of our old foe, the Dun Cow, perhaps. The Winwick <laughs> well, pig. Not actually. A really strange one. So they were trying to build St Oswald's Church and they had all this stone delivered saying, that's the spot we want to build St Oswald's Church. All the builders go to sleep, lovely little nap, wake up in the morning... And all the stone has mysteriously moved up the hill several hundred metres. What is going on with our stone, they think? So they begin to move the stone back down the hill and leave some people on guard duty to make sure that the rest of the stone isn't muddled about with and messed around with. Only then they discover the stones are being moved by a magical ghost pig. What? Yeah. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> so that's the Winwick pig. It had very clear ideas, and they decided, all right, well, this magical pig, it knows what it's doing. We will move the location of St Oswald's Church, and we'll just build it up the hill a bit. When I hear stories like this, I can't help but imagine conversations between the building project manager <laughs> and uh, some of the other builders. So we're doing what now? <laughs> Oh, we're moving the entire location of the church because the magical ethereal pig yeah. 
has decided it needs to be up the hill. <laughs> well, I also feel like there are more opportunities in the modern labour market for ghost pigs to get involved in construction. Absolutely. It could revolutionise the industry. <laughs> now, uh, you've also got, in Lancashire, in terms of folklore, the Holy Hand of Bryn Hill. This is another quite interesting one. Father Arrowsmith was a Catholic priest. He was executed in 1628 for his you know, heretical beliefs, but he was famously able to cure people with his healing hand. So, easy solution. Chop the hand off, keep it in a silk bag, and then whenever someone gets ill, you just rub the bag with the hand in on them. Wow, that blows a lot of my folk medicine completely out of the water. <laughs> What's absolutely crazy about this particular story is that miracles were coming off this hand in Bryn Hill for centuries. Oh, so it was a really effective rotten severed hand in a silk bag. The last recorded cases of it helping people who were ill were in the 19th century. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, how about the Clegg Hall Boggart? Tell me more. Okay. Boggarts keep popping up in research. They do. I think we perhaps ought to devote an episode to the boggart. Maybe. What is a boggart, Eleanor? Well, opinions vary do, as yeah. to what a boggart is. Um, at the most basic level, it's a ghost or yeah. a spirit or right. bogey. Um, yeah. so, but I think it can sometimes be a, a little monster. Yeah, it can, as like well. a goblin as mm. well, definitely. Well, the Clegg Hall boggart is quite an interesting case. In the 13th century, in Littlebridge, there was a master of a house there, of Clegg Hall. He went off to fight in France with Henry III. He left his kids behind in the care of his brother. But this wicked uncle set about murdering all of the other heirs to mean that he would be the person who would inherit the manor and, and all of the money. Unfortunately for him, one of these children became a boggart, a ghost, and terrorised him, haunted him. And when the master of the house came back from the wars, the boggart was able to explain what had happened to everybody and justice was done to the wicked uncle. Unfortunately for the boggart, though, this didn't free him. So this little ghost boy has been haunting Clegg Hall ever since, to such a degree that there is the boggart's room in Clegg Hall <laughs> that everybody knows you don't go in there because only bad stuff happens. Oh, wow. I love that it's got its own room. Yeah, well, you would, wouldn't you? You'd make sure that the ghost has its own room. Oh, 100%. <laughs> don't want to cause any more trouble. OK, last little one, because there are loads of them. But how about this? The Tinker of Boland Fells. Who's the Tinker of Boland Fells? Well, this is an early detective story. We're talking about a 16th century tale here. There's all of these mysterious, seemingly supernatural thefts happening around that huge forest, the forest mm. of Boland. And so a knight from Lancaster Castle decides he is going to figure out what is going on and get to the bottom of this problem. Eventually, through the stolen goods and the castle jailer, he manages to trace what has been happening back to a locksmith, the aforementioned tinker. So actually, there's nothing supernatural <laughs> about the thefts at all. This guy's just been breaking in and leaving no trace because he's a really great locksmith. Exactly <laughs> right. So <laughs> anyway, we had better get on. This week's story is another devil tale set in the ancient village of Cockerham, half a day's walk from Lancaster. And I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. <laughs> 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As many know all too well, the devil is fond of Lancashire. Quite why is a mystery, for as long as stories have been told, the people of the county have been playing the devil at his own games. And the devil, angered by their wit and cunning, has earned a reputation for kicking huge hunks of stone in frustration. We know this because the devil's footprint leaves its mark, and you can see these shapes on stones and boulders all across Lancashire today. For example, up on Pendle Hill, near the haunted house at Stainscombe, up on the moors where the devil used to meet his witches, there's a pile of stones bearing the shape of old Nick's cloven hooves. People say they came about when he danced jigs at having claimed the witches' souls. Then there's the case of the builders on Scribner Hill, who found a stone nobody could shift. No matter how hard they strained and heaved, there was no moving it. That was until one of the men said he'd sell his soul to the devil, if only he'd move that rock. Lo and behold, the devil appeared, lay on his back, cackled once, and kicked the stone, which went flying off into a nearby field. No one knows what happened to the builder or his soul, but if you look at the wall of North Manchester Meeting House, you can see that very stone used in part of what was once the old cemetery wall. My favourite Devil's Mark, though, is on Broadfleet Bridge in Pilling, and that one came about because the Devil was hopping mad, all from the doings of a wily old schoolmaster called Hallows. See, on the coastal plains of West Lancashire, south of where the River Loon meets the sea, there's a pretty old village where, so it's said, no one ever wanted for much. The lake in Mosswood seemed blessed somehow and was always rich with fish. The forest was likewise filled with game and was a fine place for mushroom picking. Best of all, for a time, the village was famous for salt. To this day, you can follow the winding river Cocker out to the sea, but where the land ends and the waves begin is not as it once was. The salt strands that were are all inland now, though once, by wetting the rocks on the strands with seawater, the people of Cockerham would pike out the saltness, the water sliding off into pits of sod while only the flavour remained. This sweet, briny taste brought gold to Cockerham. Not much, mind you, but enough. 
though few merchants ever stayed there for long, hurrying to do their trading and moving on, keeping their coin purses closely guarded. Not for the people of Cockerham were dishonest, far from it. Rather, word was that the fairies liked Cockerham, and in the summertime they would buzz around the salt strands like clouds of shimmering flies, eager for a lick of the salt. Perhaps this is why, when you meet folk from Cockerham, you can note a sort of twinkle in their eyes and a different kind of spring in their step. People say that this is because maybe, just maybe, somewhere back along the line, a great-great-grandmother or a great-great-grandfather did a trade with the Fae to bring their kin good luck. Or maybe, as unlikely as it seems, on one midsummer eve, one of them fell in love with a fairy, and the babe born afterwards was blessed with a share of their magic. Nowadays, it's still said that fairies will swing by Cockerham from time to time just to see how the folk there are doing. And part of why they do, even now, what with the salt being long gone, is even the fairies know the story of the place, the echo of the legend lingering like a pinch of salt on the tongue. You see, what with Cockerham being such a fine village, with all a person could want or need on any given day, the people there were happy. Not haughtily so, mind you, but they were a jolly lot, living lives without much care. And perhaps it was because of this, or perhaps it was down to the monks at nearby Cockersand Abbey, whose bells and prayers chafed in his ears. But either way, one day, long ago, the devil came to Cockerham and looked to make it his permanent home. The people of the village didn't realise at first, because at first the changes were subtle. The children all spied peculiar things though, like birds flying backwards and flowers hiding their petals growing down into the earth. Children being children, they reported this on, telling their mothers and fathers about it. But parents being parents, they took no heed busy as they were with splitting wood for fires, planting crops in the rich earth, or piking salt to give their lives more flavour. At the schoolhouse, though, Ambrose Hallows, the schoolmaster, well, he listened to the children prattling. Hallows was just one of those fellows with a spring in his step and a twinkle in his eye. He never knew love, say a love of books, and liked to play pranks on Mr Schofield, the rector at St Michael's Church. And though Hallows took a healthy penny from each household for each child he taught, he'd heard plenty of gossip from children over the years and knew, firstly, not to take it too seriously, and secondly, not to pass the chatter on, for that was a sure way of losing pupils. After school each day, though, Ambrose Hallows would walk around the village saying hello to this person and that, checking all about the place was as it should be. For, as we all know, village life relies on people like Mr Hallows, the first ones to start a snowball fight, the voice at the back of the pub who calls out for a wager, or the person who suggests that a fair might be nice to mark this occasion or that from time to time. And one evening, just a few days after the prattle of children had reached his ears, Mr Hallows came across Mary Briarcliff on one of his walks, with Mary all in a mess and a muddle. "'What's occurring, Mary?' Ambrose asked, 
and through the blubbing of tears and the catching of breath, Mary told Mr. Hallows of a very strange thing indeed. It's my Bessie, she said. I was milking her sea, not thinking of much while I did, and there I was with my bucket and my cow, sat on my milking stool, squeezing her duds, when you'll never guess what happened, Mr. Hallows, not in a month of Sundays. What was it then, Mary? Ambrose said. Don't leave me on tenter hooks. Well, said Mary, I'd never believe it if I didn't see it with my own eyes. But the milk, you see... Instead of yellow, white and creamy as it ought to be, Bessie's milk, it came out black. Black, Mary? Oh, yes, black as pitch and sticky too, like tar that's stuck to me fingers. Then Mary held up her hand, which she'd been clutching and hiding in her pinafore. And, would you believe it, no word of a lie, her skin was stained black as night. Just then, the wind blew, but instead of a sweet-smelling summer breeze, Hallows caught something else on the edge of his nose. Unmistakable, he thought, even though it was just a slight whiff. That, he said to himself, is the smell of brimstone. Making his apologies to Mary, off Hallows strode, making a beeline for St Michael's Rectory. Once there, he knocked three times on Mr Schofield's door. Young Mr Schofield, who hadn't long been out of short trousers, opened his door and grimaced. "'What is it this time, Mr Hallows?' he asked, with an edge of hard-earned scepticism. This is because, out of a healthy liking for mischief, Hallows had made a fool of Schofield once or twice— this came about because once Schofield had been one of Mr. Hallow's pupils. Only being such a bright lad, Schofield had gone off to university, becoming a man of letters. Yet, instead of going off to do great and good things, Mr. Schofield had come back to his old parish, which Mr. Hallow's thought was a waste of talent. So, one April 1st, for one reason or another, Mr. Schofield had made a fuss over people eating no meat. He called it April Fish Day. And so Mr. Hallows had ensured there'd be fish everywhere Schofield looked. In his larder, his writing desk, under his pillow, even in the nave of the church. Another time, not long after Schofield had come to the village, Hallows had all the school children pretend that Cockerham was being harassed by a magical goat, visible only to young eyes. The children would point at empty space and holler whenever Mr. Schofield was near, making play of watching the creature bound off over a gate or boundary wall. When something was lost, broken, or too many sweet buns went missing, the children would blame it on the magical goat. So, before long, Schofield was walking about the village with his wooden cross, uttering holy rites in an attempt to rid Cockerham of the mischiefs of the invisible goat. Trouble was, none of the adults in the village had ever heard of such a thing, making Schofield look daft as a brush. That night, though, Hallows was serious when he made his report of Mary and her cow's black milk, and of the children's stories of the birds flying backwards, flowers hiding their colours, and the smell of brimstone on the breeze. I'm afraid it's the devil, Hallows said, and I think this is more your area of expertise than mine. Pah! Schofield replied. The devil in Cockerham? Pull the other one, Mr. Hallows, and good evening to you.
With that, Schofield slammed the door in Hallow's face. Though he wasn't quite so brash and confident in a few days' time, when all across the village, things were going wrong. The river Cocker, for example, started to flow upstream. The chickens at the townly farm lay only eggs that were already rotten. And, worst of all, when the girls of Cockerham played the lover's game, their apples were bitter and had no pips inside. To explain, the lover's game was famous in those parts. The idea was a Lancashire maid would eat an apple and then when they got to the core, they would sing a song and tip the pips as a way of telling their fortunes. The rhyme, which remains famous, goes as follows. Pippin, Pippin, paradise. Tell me where my true love lies. East, west, north or south. Pilling Moss or Cockermouth. What with Pilling Moss being just a short walk away, it was said in Cockerham that the lover's game was as good a means as any for finding a handsome swain with whom to whisper sweet nothings. But what with the apples gone vicious and with no pips inside at all, people started to fear there would be no new love in Cockerham from then on. With all these strange goings on and the air becoming increasingly unbreathable on account of the brimstone smoke and smells, Mr. Schofield was minded to take Mr. Hallows a little more seriously. But no matter the prayers he said or the songs he had the congregation sing, in Cockerham things only went from bad to worse. The skies grew cold, dark clouds gathered, and people started to spot the devil peering around fence posts and street corners. They'd give chase, following the thickening stink of sulphur, but all they'd find is a trail of salt, for the devil had taken to gobbling up all the crystals from the salt strands in the greedy sort of way devils are famous for. Yet, by night, they would hear the devil walking the streets, whistling a happy tune, his cloven hooves clattering and sparking on the ground. They'd see evidence of his passing, grassy verges singed by the whippings of his forked tail, and nasty messages scrawled on pieces of parchment left pinned to things, detailing changes he would like to see. No more smiling, for example, and absolutely no laughing, no attending church, no reading or telling stories, and only sweet foods and strong, boozy drinks to be consumed by anyone. Well, some people quite liked all this, but not Mr. Hallows. And that's when the old schoolmaster struck upon a novel idea. He asked Mr. Schofield for his help, but Mr. Schofield was cowering in fear, hiding in the church and muttering scriptures over and over. So, late one night, after quite a lot of thinking, just like with the Yuletide feast, the May Day dance and the Spring Festival, Ambrose Hallows rolled up his sleeves and took matters into his own hands. He started in as sure a way as any, summoning the creature up by saying the Lord's Prayer backwards. No sooner had he uttered the words than, poof, in a cloud of black and stinking smoke, the devil appeared right there in Mr. Hallow's kitchen. Well, well, said the devil, Mr. Hallow's. It's nice to finally make your acquaintance, although as I look around I see... "'Vegetables on your kitchen counters. 
there are well-thumbed books everywhere. And what's this? A calendar to remember people's birthdays? I feel, Mr. Hallows, that you are a good person. Yet all good hearts have scope for corruption, and here you are summoning me. Your soul, it smells deliciously pure. I wonder what might I offer you in exchange for it. I've called you here for a wager, said Mr. Hallows, as I understand you like that sort of thing. Oh, yes, the devil purred. I do so love to gamble. So tell me, what did you have in mind? And this is when Mr. Hallows laid out his terms. You like Cockerham, he said, as do I. It's near enough heaven on earth to me. Yet we both want to make it our home. So I challenge you to three tasks. If you beat me in all three, you can have my soul and Cockerham too. But if I win just once, you'll leave our village and promise to never return. Done, said the devil without really thinking, confident in all that he was. Right then, first challenge, Mr. Hallow said nervously, looking out of his window at the sun starting to rise. The long hedgerow at the bottom of Milner's Hollow. By morning, I want you to tell me how many dewdrops are on it. The devil cackled, clicking his fingers and transporting himself and Mr. Hallows to the very spot. And although the hedgerow had been covered with dew, the very act of them appearing and the devil beating his wings saw all of them fall off, save thirteen. The devil counted them up rather sarcastically, then announced the results to Mr. Hallows. There are thirteen dewdrops on this hedgerow, Mr. Hallows. It's almost as if you want me to have your soul. Annoyed, Mr. Hallows huffed for a moment, then thought of the largest field he knew. The cornfield off Crimble's Lane. Take us there, he said. And with a click of his claws, the devil vanished himself and Mr. Hallows, depositing them on the ground not far from the cocker's banks. Since you're so good at counting, manage this. Tell me, how many heads of corn are there in this field? Are you sure? asked the devil. Aye, I am, Hallows replied. The devil snorted with laughter, sparks shooting from his nostrils, and he raised a hand, closed an eye, and in but a few seconds announced the result. Six million... Six hundred and sixty-six thousand, six hundred and sixty-six. Mr. Hallows, angered, squinted at the devil out of one flashing eye. You're a cheat, he said. There's not. You've made that number up. Oh, really, said the devil. In which case, why don't you count them? I'll wait. Mr. Hallows, by now feeling rightly outsmarted, thought of one last gambit. Fine then, to the salt strands, let's go. With a click, whoosh and smouldery puff, the pair arrived on the salt flats, looking out at the churning waves. Confident in himself this time, and swearing he saw fairy faces hiding in the undergrowth nearby and watching on, Ambrose Hallows 
made his stand. Weave me a rope, he said, the devil sniggering, using nothing more than the sand on this beach. Oh, very well, said the devil, sighing in a manner which made it clear he was bored. And so, without much effort, the creature tucked his wings in neatly, sat down cross-legged on the beach, and set to work. It didn't take long, and just at the moment you might have said the sun was really up, which made the devil squint, the creature raised his creation aloft, a length of rope woven from the sand of the beach. All done, said the devil, handing Hallows the rope and standing up and brushing himself down. Now both your soul and Cockerham Village are mine. Not so fast, said Mr. Hallows, weighing the rope in his hands. And then, feeling more than a little proud of himself, the old schoolmaster walked down to the water's edge. Once there, he knelt, washing the rope in the salty brine. As he did, it fell to pieces and washed away through Mr. Hallow's fingers. You're a cheat, said the devil angrily. Oh, really? replied Ambrose Hallows. In which case, why don't you tie me up with the rope you just made? I'll wait. And with that, the devil screamed and stamped and flapped his leathery wings, spitting at Mr. Hallows and leaping angrily into the sky. Where he landed at Pilling Moss before taking flight again is where you'll find the mark on Broadfleet Bridge. But suffice to say, the devil never came back to Cockerham. As for what happened to Mr. Hallows, nobody knows for sure, because in all likelihood, he died as humbly as he lived, albeit with a salty vein of mischief and a little fairy sparkle lighting him up around the edges. So, Eleanor, the Cockerham Devil. Bit of a change of pace from my last story. Yes, I won't be having nightmares uh, from this one, <laughs> unlike the Netley Abbey Phantoms. <laughs> well, I was quite jealous of your devil story, which launched the whole podcast. That was the story of Cuthman and the digging of Devil's Dyke. In this one, the devil isn't trying to drown a whole county, just get into real estate. Yes, I really liked uh, the devil's decrees that only <laughs> boozy drinks and sweet food should be consumed. <laughs> yeah, totally devilish behaviour, I feel. <laughs> and um, he was very uh, cross to find vegetables in a yeah. birthday calendar <laughs> yeah. on the schoolmaster's yeah. home. Quite right. Well, he's also slightly pitiful, as any good sort of medieval devil mm -hmm. ought to be, and one who's guilty of his own sins and kind of deserves what's coming to him. Cockerham still exists, population circa 700, and all the stuff about salt comes from an 18th century land survey I ended up finding and reading about Lancashire and its various villages, where the author describes the process of piking salt, which I just think is an amazing term. Is that picking salt uh, pre-standardised spelling, or is that just another word for gathering? Well, it's not, because his other spellings are all fine. So piking is a technical term. Quite what it means, I have no idea. One presumes perhaps stabbing the sea with a pike. That might work. Like to spear individual grains of salt. Yeah, that's right. To bring them out and go, mmm, that's delicious. Sounds um, very efficient. <laughs> as for our hero this week, uh, we featured knights and priests as our hero characters in previous episodes. But this is a first on The Three Ravens because, weirdly, 
school teachers are quite often heroes in folk tales. I loved your school teacher hero, oh, who's slightly cheeky and playing his tricks on the local priest. Well, yeah, nowadays teachers occupy a bit of a strange position in English culture, sort of constantly put upon and stretched to breaking point, and maybe held up as heroes in some regards, but also they're seen as difficult and annoying by the general public, who... I mean, crazily, just as an interesting statistic, 70% of English people believe teachers can just take days off whenever they want to. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I hear the hollow laughter from any teachers listening. People just don't understand what is involved with being a teacher anymore. But back in the pre-Victorian era, teachers and tutors in villages were a different kind of wise person. So they often ended up in positions where they helped outsmart a foe or overcome a problem in a folktale. Yes, you've got your, your sort of three pillars of wisdom in village society, haven't you? Your teacher, your doctor and your priest. You do. And then you also have people like the mayor who you really shouldn't trust. No, not held up as a pillar of wisdom. <laughs> and then I think knights that can be both good and bad. Normally they're mm. honourable chivalric tales but not always sometimes you get baddie knights yes yes i suppose it's not till the victorians you start seeing the rise of the, the horrible headmaster well that's exactly right things only really changed when in the 1870s teaching was reformed to become the sort of job at the learning factory we kind of still see it as today with rows of desks and, and all the rest of it and since that time teachers have just as often become the villains in films and stories you know if you think about roald dahl or harry potter you've got some that are mysterious and nice and others that are just baddies it's this horrible dolores umbridge yeah or miss trunchbull <laughs> or a lot of those or, kinds uh, of characters watford squares yeah um, dickens so uh, what's interesting to me is how rarely modern teachers in fiction are allowed to be human beings, are allowed to be kind of mischievous and allowed to be fun. I mean, to be honest, scrap that. How rarely teachers in the modern day are allowed to be human beings. But that's a whole other debate. I was glad that Mr Hollows taught the devil a thing or two. Good for him. Yes, and I'd like to see him pitted against Ofsted. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ofsted would not stand a chance. Nope. <laughs> now, there's also a second Cockerham Devil. Is there? There is. It's a bit of a funny story, but when someone was carving a new rood screen in the church at Cockerham, after the previous one was destroyed, they did such a terrible job of carving an angel and gave it such an ugly face oh. that the Bishop of Lancaster was called to ask for advice. And the Bishop of Lancaster said best thing to do is slap some horns on it oh and they just turned it into a devil <laughs> they did oh. so at st michael's church you can actually go and see a cockerum devil so a very ugly angel is yep. a devil mm -hmm. mm, there's an interesting discussion to be had there i think <laughs> also there is a great folk ballad called the cockerum devil which i'll link to on the website but warning dear listener it is and earworm. It's shockingly catchy. We've been singing twiddlem twaddlem all <laughs> over the village. <laughs> Anyhow, Eleanor, where are we headed next week and what do you have planned? Next week we are off to a county that rubs shoulders with us here in Sussex. We're going to Kent. Yes, we are even going to Canterbury to do some research, which is very exciting. For now, though, please do pop by our website at www.3ravenspodcast.com where we host our archive of all past episodes and keep our blog with all sorts of expanded information for each episode. 
And of course, you can visit our online shop for T-shirts and other Three Ravens merchandise. As I really like the tote bag. You do like the tote bag. <laughs> As always, if you have your own folktale that you would like us to feature on the podcast, then do please write it up and email it to us at threeravenspodcast at gmail.com. We've had a few, a little smattering, but I'd love a few more. They don't have to be long. Um, and then we are planning to feature those on our upcoming listener episodes. And please, artsy folk, enter our card design contest. Send us those folk-inspired designs to that same address as JPEGs. Also, please come and join in the fun on Twitter at Three Ravens Pod and on Instagram via at Three Ravens Podcast, where we'll be putting up photos from our upcoming trip to Canterbury and on facebook.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast. And don't forget to tag us if you're visiting fun and folky places around England. Yes, please do. Until next time then, while our story's gone that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle till you're out of the woods. Thanks and credit go to Jenny Bailey and David England and their book of Lancashire Folk Tales, Melanie Warren's awesome book, Lancashire Folk, and visitlancashire.com, all of which were very helpful in my research for this episode. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Ben Harbour and Eleanor Conlon, and our logo was designed by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks, and such lean man With a down, dairy, 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 down, down Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.